Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to talk about one of our favourite subjects, or maybe I should say one of my favourite subjects. Are people really losing faith in democracy? And if so, why? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. Helen Thompson, an expert in political economy and many other things, is here with me, and also Roberto Foa, who is the author of a new report which gathers the biggest ever data set looking at people's responses in surveys when they're asked, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with democracy from all over the world from the last 30 plus years? So this, is, this information has never been gathered in this form before and it shows some really interesting patterns and the news is broadly not good. Before we start, I should say we're recording this at lunchtime rather than early in the morning. And because this is a working university, people are outside having their lunch. If you hear some noises, that's what it is in the background. This report is launched today. And at the end, we'll tell you how you can read it. It's available for free. It's got some really good charts in it too, which capture the picture of global satisfaction with democracy. And we're going to tweet some of those during the week. Roberto, let's start. we'll start with the global picture to get a sense of what the headline story is here. As I said, it's broadly speaking not good. People seem less happy with democracy. And then we're going to come on to talk about Europe. And I'm sure Helen will have views on this too, because there's some really interesting trends in Europe. If you had to sum up the global picture, how does it look for democracy? What's the health? Not great. There are about 77 countries uh, for which we have a fairly complete uh, time series data set from from the mid-1990s up until the present day, with the most recent survey coming in uh, just in the last month. And essentially what we find is that when we add these 77 countries together, we population weight them to get a sort of aggregate for how democracy is faring or public opinion about democracy is faring across the world uh, since the mid-1990s, what we find is that dissatisfaction has gone up by around about 10 percentage points, so one in every 10 people. So it's kind of hard to know 10 percentage points. Is that a lot? Is that not a lot? It depends on how you map it in these charts. But basically it is a lot, right? That's a sizable decline in people's satisfaction with democracy? It's a lot. I mean, that's just the sort of average figure. So so within that it sort of conceals different trends in different parts of the world and, and many countries where the picture is actually much more negative, as well as, of course, some positive stories, which we also try to highlight in the report. So one of the countries where the picture is broadly negative is the United States. We're not actually going to talk about that today. We're going to be talking about America next week in the context of the Iowa caucus. There's lots to be said about America, but maybe people are more familiar with some of that. And there's a Trump effect and other things going on there too. We're going to talk about some of the countries where you could say the news is good, but then when you try and unpack why the news is good, it may not be good news for democracy. But within Europe, there are big variations. There are some catastrophic declines in places you would expect, like Greece. There are some complicated stories in countries like Germany. There's a broad story in the UK. So we're going to try and unpick these. But your report has discovered two 
wider trends in the European case that can be summed up as north versus south and east versus west. So people in southern Europe, Spain, Italy, the Mediterranean, are much less happy with democracy than people in northern Europe. And people, this may be more surprising, people in eastern Europe are much happier with democracy than people in western Europe. So let's do north-south first if we can. So what's going on there? Why and what's the evidence that people in the north, and so countries like the Scandinavian countries, but not just Germany, among others, are happier with their democracies than people in the south? The story in the southern Europe is quite clear that since the start of the Eurozone crisis, there's been a total meltdown in satisfaction with the political system, with political elites, and with established parties. And that's the result of a number of different factors. I mean, partly that's the way that the Eurozone crisis revealed domestic problems that perhaps had been concealed before, uh, sort of you know, cooking the books in Greece and so on. Uh, and secondly, that's also partly how the Eurozone crisis has sort of created a sense of powerlessness uh, in many countries in southern Europe. There's a feeling of sort of loss of, of sovereignty and a loss of an ability to sort of be able to escape from this, from this economic malaise. Meanwhile, in northern Europe, I think that there's almost a lack of an awareness of this. And I think Germany has slept walked through the Eurozone crisis in a state of snomnambulant satisfaction, blissfully unaware of the depth of anger and pain in the Eurozone periphery. There are so many bits of data in this report that are slightly startling. So one of them, there's a chart again we'll tweet it later this week with Germany tracked against other European countries and this weird effect which is as in the run-up to the euro crisis when the euro seemed to be going well as people in places like Greece and Spain and Italy are becoming happier with their democracies it seems more settled Germans are becoming less happy as it were as southern Europe becomes happier with democracy Germans become less happy with their democracy then the euro crisis hits and it starts to crater in those other places, at which point Germans become happier with their democracy again, as they see, and they must, I mean, they're fully aware of these effects in Southern Europe. I can sort of understand what's going on there. I mean, it looks a bit like schadenfreude on the part of Germans, but can you unpick it? I don't think it's necessarily schadenfreude. I think that you have to separate out the economic story of the Eurozone from the political story of the Eurozone, and the political story then has got several dimensions to it. So on the on the economic side, what you said were the, the good years of the euro weren't particularly good for Germany. And Germany you know, struggles with very high unemployment in the early part of the 2000s. It's the consequence of the reforms that the Social Democratic Green Coalition pushed through in order to allow a reunified Germany to adjust to the conditions of not only monetary union, but increased international economic competition, in, including from China. And those are and I stress relative, relative boom years, not in Italy, but in Spain in particular of the southern European states. Italy is actually the southern European country that has the most Eurozone problems in economic terms before we get to the Eurozone crisis itself breaking in 2009. Then you've got the question about what happens after 2009 and then you've got economic misery in a number of southern European countries, obviously most dramatically in in Greece, but you've then also got the story about what happens to democracy in those countries under that pressure, particularly in Italy and Greece, because essentially the ways in which the Eurozone is managed leads in 2011 to two elected governments in those countries being removed from power in ways in Italy in which it looks in particular like you have 
the European Central Bank, by the way, in which it's buying bonds or not buying bonds, and pressure from Merkel and Sarkozy lead to Berlusconi's exit from office and the replacement of a cabinet full of democratically elected politicians with a cabinet full of technocrats. So you actually have something that looks like not necessarily the complete removal of democracy in Italy, but the severe dilution at least of democracy and a lesser version of that plays out in Greece when Papandreou um, is basically pushed out of power. So you would expect the Southern European countries at that point to have lots of people who are pretty distrustful of democracy, both because of the economic outcomes it's producing, but, but really because it is compromising democracy itself. And at the same time, is German democracy starting to feel more responsive? So is it, and Roberto, we can talk about this in a second of your report, you try and disaggregate some of the economic factors. So it doesn't just neatly track, you know, people are happy with democracy when they're better off and unhappy when they're worse off. But in the German case, after the Eurozone crisis, is it plausible to say that Germans would feel that their democracy was more responsive, that it was actually accommodating some of their anxieties and concerns in ways that wasn't happening in Southern Europe or were they simply just the beneficiaries? That's a, that's a complicated story in, in Germany's case because there are the two different things that are going on. On the one hand, I would say the collective policy making around the Eurozone crisis is responsive to a specific set of German interests, if we like, and that is the interests of German banks. But it is not responsive to the interests of German savers. And there's a quite a significant backlash in Germany in 2012 in particular after Draghi makes his whatever it takes speech supposedly to, to save the euro. It's the response to that in Germany that creates the Alternative for Deutschland party and you get the fragmentation of the, the centre-right in Germany for the first time in the post-war period. Now, Clearly, the alternative for Deutschland is, as a party is then boosted by what happens in 2015 with the refugee and migrant crisis, but its origins lie in actually quite deep German dissatisfaction with the way in which Draghi brings that episode of the Eurozone crisis to an end. Roberta, one of the things that your report raises is the possibility that people might be dissatisfied with democracy for the reasons Helen said. It seemed like it in Greece, in Italy, it had kind of ceased to function. But there's also democracy, as in the German case, where people are frustrated with the main political parties, that they're casting their votes around more widely, these new populist parties or parties further to the left and to the right that might not expect to do well, start to do well. But you could, in a way, be relatively happy with your democracy if you're finding outlets, at least if you think your system is relatively responsive to that. There does seem to be a difference between kind of losing faith in the sense that you think it's ground to a halt and losing faith with bits of it, but finding other outlets for your frustration. And the German story might be more of the second. I think so. I mean, you know, democracies have to be responsive and they have to be representative. And I think part of that expressive representative function, you know, you will find in a democracy where people are able to vote for those extremist parties. They might not make it into government, but people feel that they are at least able to, you know, their opinion has somehow been reflected or has shaped the political space in some way. But then there's the, you know, responsiveness question. And I think that's where in Southern Europe, you have a situation where it doesn't actually really matter what the voters think. The governments simply have their hands tied by economic circumstances, you know, being part of the Eurozone and so on, or an explicit IMF bailout agreement. That means that politicians are actually quite constrained in what they can actually do. And in the Greek case, which is the most extreme one, I think it's the biggest fall Mm. in any country that you map here, kind of from roughly a quarter of the population being dissatisfied with democracy to three quarters. So that's kind of, that's off a cliff. And you look at those figures and you think, well, that's really terrible. 
but Greek democracy survived, or at least to this point it survived. So there are two, again, two ways of looking at that. And to me, so that's the worst one of all. And some people might read your report and want to say, well, where are the points beyond which you can't come back? And in the Greek case, though that is the biggest decline of all, it didn't destroy Greek democracy. That's absolutely right. But I think we have to remember is that there's a huge gap between people losing faith in their institutions and the collapse of the democratic system itself. These two very separate events. Now, if you look at a country like Venezuela, for example, before Chavez came into power, there was a very long period going back to the 1980s of rising discontent, rising dissatisfaction with the political system, emerging signs of political instability. People's first instinct is going to be to try and fix the system, to work within the system. It's really only after you've had a period of time, perhaps a decade or decades, where these problems seem to be ingrained and unfixable that the democratic system itself can really start to be threatened. I would say in Greece's case as well, though, that the euro has a disciplining effect on what the possibilities of rebellion against democracy are, because Greece was at risk. Or rather rebelling against non-democracy. Yeah. I mean, that's the puzzle here, right? But Greece because it ceased to be a functioning democracy in some respects, and therefore be, yeah. it survives as a democracy. It ceases to be a functioning democracy and obviously takes a big blow to the ideal of democracy by what happens with the, the referendum in 2015 and the fact that the response of the Eurozone authorities to the referendum is simply to make the terms of the bailout even tougher than they already were. In retrospect, the crucial thing really, I think, about the, that moment of the Greek Eurozone crisis is that the, the attempt to expel Greece from the Eurozone, which would probably have led ultimately to its expulsion from the European Union as well. Didn't happen, it failed. The Greece stopped that, stopped it by surrendering to even more humiliation than what had already been heaped upon it. But it was a moment in which the question of whether Greece was staying inside the Eurozone or not was resolved ultimately by Greeks, or the Greek government, I should say, rather than by the EU. And that means, I think, that the possibilities of the kind of politics that you can have in Greece once that decision of like come what may in economic outcomes in the short to medium term we're staying in the euro it does restrict the possibilities of how Greek politics is going to develop from that moment. And you think that there would have been it's very hard to know but there would have been a possibility of a much more significant break with democracy if Greece had been removed from the eurozone? I think that you'd have at least have to think that that was a possibility yeah because it would have been such an economic shock. I mean, Greece would have been left with an enormous amount of debt that would still have been denominated in euros. It would have to have gone back to having a, a national currency. I mean, that's be a pretty chaotic situation. And at the very least, it's got to be possible that that could have led to some kind of democratic breakdown. But I can ask about another country that stands out in your data, which is Spain. So Spain is probably, aside from Greece, is the one where the rising dissatisfaction is greatest. Spain doesn't obviously look that different from Portugal or Italy, or but it, as you present the evidence, it stands out. It is true that Spain in recent years has really struggled to form governments. So Spanish democracy looks gridlocked at the moment. There's another attempt to break the gridlock. Is that part of that story? Do you have a sense of what's 
driving it in Spain? Well, I mean, Spain is another country just like Italy, just like Greece, that is constrained by its you know policy set that it can uh, can adopt in its response to the eurozone crisis. I think the big difference between a country like Spain and a country like Italy, for example, where we haven't seen quite the same collapse or the same fall in satisfaction with democracy, is rather simply that in Spain, people have lost faith in their institutions, but in a country like Italy, people never had any faith to begin with. (laughs) I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. So, And it is an important point here. So some of this is relative and some of it is absolute. And so Spain looks like a really sobering tale but because it starts from a higher base. But there's a clear difference though between them and that is, is that Spain's had a secessionist crisis from Catalonia in the last few years and, and Italy hasn't I mean, because actually in terms of economic outcomes once you get past 2012 Spain and Portugal have the best recovery of the, the southern European economies so you struggle I think with an economic explanation about why Spain should be an outlier but I think that means that the explanation lies in the Catalan question. I mean if you were Catalonian you could completely understand why you would feel that referendum that was held in Catalonia looks like a test case of what might cause people to lose faith in democracy. You can't disaggregate Spanish from Catalonian well, that, that, that uh, Well, we could, actually. Uh, that Maybe would obviously we take a bit of time to go, go into the data and, and break that down subnationally within Spain. So I think that the political dimension is certainly a part of it. I think the economic dimension is there as well in the sense that even if GDP per capita is growing again in Spain from around 2012 or 13 onwards, nonetheless, there are other economic effects in terms of wages or in terms of unemployment that have taken and are taking much longer to resolve. There's still some kind of lasting economic legacy to the Eurozone crisis in Spain. If we then move east-west, and it cuts across the story we've just been talking about, so some of the countries where, over the period where it's been declining and cratering, in parts of southern Europe. Satisfaction with democracy has been rising, include Poland, very notably Hungary, which is probably the one, again, where you see the the strongest rise. Now, the countries in Eastern Europe where it's rising are not members of the Eurozone, so that's one thing that might be going on here, something to do with autonomy. But the other thing that's clear is that in a country like Hungary, we're moving, they are moving in a much more starkly populist direction. And it did at least raise the possibility for me looking at this data that one way you could raise satisfaction with your democracy is to satisfy the majority of your population, but treat the minorities really badly. And the majority might well feel a bit perkier about democracy. And the people who are the victims who really will have given up on it, A, are the minority and B, they might hate it a lot more than the people who like it like it, but you're just measuring satisfaction and dissatisfaction. So if we just take Hungary, is it at least possible that it's bad news that people are having more faith in Hungarian democracy? I think this brings out a a really fundamental point, and it's something we try to emphasise up front in the report, which is that satisfaction with democracy is not the same as a belief in liberal democratic principles. You can be very satisfied with the political system or the democratic political system in your country, even if it's falling short of certain liberal democratic principles. And of course, people can be very dissatisfied with political systems that are at least on certain elements of civil rights and liberties, you know, performing adequately and functionally. So 
I think part of the story is absolutely fascinating to see that in Central and Eastern Europe, as there has been this wave of populism, that satisfaction with democracy has actually gone up, and it's actually gone up fairly concurrently with the election of certain populists in Poland or in Hungary, which says to me that people's satisfaction with democracy is much more about a kind of concurrence or congruence between popular opinions and indeed prejudices, perhaps, uh, and their reflection by the political system. Again, it's that kind of representative function of democracy, of democratic institutions. On Hungary specifically, I would say that it is true that the xenophobia and the nationalism is a part of that story. But it's important not to forget as well, part of the reason why Orban and some other populists in Poland, for example, have been popular is also related to their, their policies on social welfare and sort of redistributing some of the economic gains of the last couple of decades that have gone to Warsaw or Budapest uh, more broadly within the country. I think the other thing you have to bear in mind is like what happened in the 90s and the, the latter part of the 90s and the early 2000s in regard to those countries when they were about joining the European Union. That became the near primary national purpose of politics to take Poland and Hungary and Czech Republic etc into the European Union and that meant that those governments had to agree to get into everything that was already in the European Union treaties. This was something that wasn't very responsive for obvious reasons to democratic politics in any of these states that wanted to join because they weren't having a say in what the terms of the European Union that they were joining. It was this is what you have to do in order to join. These are the treaties that you have to accept. It's not a situation which you would think is going to generate that much faith in what democracy is supposed to be about. Whereas since that they've been in, and particularly in some sense, I think, after the European Union got absorbed into the Eurozone crisis, then these governments, the governments in these countries, have been significantly more autonomous in relation to the European Union than they were able to be when they were trying to join in the late 90s and in the build-up to 2004. So we have to kind of, with all the European cases, try and disentangle what worked the European Union and perceptions of the European Union, perceptions of its democratic responsiveness or not, is doing to national attitudes. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we'll come on to the UK in a bit because there will be a very interesting study of that over the next years and even decades. But that suggests that when I began by saying that there were two, well, many more than two, but two possible broad explanations here, one of which these countries are not in the euro, the other of which is these countries are at the moment doing a kind of majoritarian politics, which also, as you say, has a strong social welfare element to it, looking after older rural-based voters. And you can satisfy those voters and there are some people who can really be left out, but they are. You, you make sure they're in the minority. But it sounds like the euro is part of the story. And say if you do the counterfactual and these countries were about to or were part of the eurozone, you might see it go very starkly into reverse. I think that's exactly what you would expect to happen, yeah. So this story isn't over yet. 
right. I don't even know. So this is right. Where are where is somewhere like well, they're, they're, Poland they're, in relation to the they're Eurozone? They're inform they're legally supposed to join, but they aren't in reality going to join ever. Ever's going too far. Ever's a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Joining the eurozone is su- involves such a sacrifice or sharing of sovereignty in countries that you know their entire basis of the legitimacy of the political system post nineteen eighty nine is is founded around the, you know, the return of a kind of national sovereignty. Um, it's very difficult to imagine those countries satisfactorily and happily joining the euro. Given what you say, Roberto, about the difference between satisfaction with democracy and people sharing democratic values or believing in democratic values this is a big question about your report but how much weight can we put on satisfaction with democracy as say a measure of the health of a democracy because there is quite a lot of evidence here that the democracies that we think of as either functioning in a way that is discriminatory and is is often quite crude populist politics does at least in the short term increase satisfaction you also have a really interesting set of data for Latin America, where the pink tide, the left populists, sharply increase satisfaction with democracy. So if you were a would-be political leader, and you were reading your report, and you thought, I want to have my people satisfied with their political system, you might think the way to do it would be to ditch some of the democratic values. Well, unpack that slightly. I mean, first of all, there are many societies where leaders have deviated from liberal democratic principles where people are not satisfied with democracy. Uh, And Venezuela is one of those countries that is one of the least satisfied uh, with its political system right now. Turkey? Um, Turkey as well in recent years uh, has also fallen. But I think that you, you raise a very important point, which is that, you know, satisfaction with democracy is not the same as liberal principles. What it tells us, it's an indicator... And what it tells us is something about the legitimacy of the political system. Right? Do people accept that process of governing as producing uh, rulers who have a right to rule? So in liberal democracies, that tells us something about people's satisfaction with liberal democracies. In societies that are not liberal democracies, it tells us about their satisfaction with the political system, which may well deviate from liberal principles in fundamental ways. So am I wrong to say, so if I use a phrase like the health of a democracy, and again, you can think about that in different ways. So the health might be, how long is it like to last? Is it about to collapse? Is it about to drop dead? Uh, Or the health might be, is it actually flourishing? Your measure doesn't tell us when they're going to drop dead. Well, it sort of does, does uh, in the sense that, I mean, mean, it's it's not as strong a predictor uh, as, you know, being able to tell you when a democracy is about to drop dead. But what we do see is that in those societies in the 1990s, say, where satisfaction with the democratic system was perilously low in Russia, in Venezuela, in Belarus, these are all countries where democracy ultimately was not sustained and was not sustained due to the election of leaders who themselves uh, then went on to undermine liberal democratic principles. So there is certainly some predictive value in this indicator. And yet, if we go back to the case of, say, Greece, there are also going to be cases where, I mean, is it because it's not sustained over a long enough period? Is it that you have to see the 
rising dissatisfaction really endured for it to be a warning sign. It's not like there's a point on the graph where it tips over to 70, 75% and it's like, right, now we're in the danger zone. Absolutely that. And one of the things as well is that now that we have so much data, such a rich data set from the last 10 to 15 years, where we have, you know, four or five surveys a year for many countries, what that means is that we can also see some of the volatility in satisfaction with democracy. And therefore, we can distinguish between those cases where it's just a sort of temporary flash in the pan legitimacy crisis, something like, you know, the expenses scandal, the parliamentary expenses scandal in the United Kingdom happened, but then it ended very quickly. And then people went back to being fairly satisfied. Um, to those cases like Venezuela in the 80s and 90s, where there was a more deep, structural, profound sense of disillusionment. Helen, do you think the Southern European case could become one of these legitimacy crisis cases? Well, I think that, again, it goes back to the European Union because you have an external support structure via the European Union that keeps certain aspects of these polities in place. Russia could collapse as a democratic politics in part because of Russia's position as a geopolitical power. It wasn't being propped up with anything. I mean, the Clinton administration thought they were propping up Russian democracy, but they weren't in any meaningful sense. Whereas for Greek democracy to collapse, I think that you'd have to see it outside the European Union in order for that to be the case. Now, that isn't to say that the European Union membership and Eurozone membership in particular doesn't involve some quite severe democratic problems for Greece. It just means that what can happen in Greece is going to be bound up with something bigger than Greece. And this is this sounds too extreme, but if you follow that logic you get these kind of Potemkin democracies in the sense that they can't collapse. But the reason they can't collapse is they are so constrained that they are becoming fundamentally non-responsive. And I don't think we're there yet. I think Greek democracy still has a lot of life in it and there's a lot of still volatility around it and some always important choices to be made. But Greek-Italian democracy is at least a possible future route. So it's very different from the Venezuelan case. It becomes a... A sham rather well, than a... I think there's a really good parallel to Latin America here. I mean, I think the situation we want to avoid in Europe is that that has existed historically in Latin America, where the divide uh, is not between left and right. The divide is between populism and technocracy. And, you know, technocracy, the situation you somewhat describe, where basically electoral institutions may exist, but they're not very functional. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a fairly small, narrow elite that is running the process. And then a sort of populist reaction because they're the only space for reaction and it's through a, a populist to say let's overthrow the entire system try something else i think that dynamic is very dangerous two countries that we haven't really touched on the united kingdom we'll come back to that the other one that stands out in europe is switzerland so i sometimes give talks about democracy and if there's a swiss person in the audience you probably get this too i always get it which is particularly if you're talking about democracy being in trouble in any sense the Swiss person in the audience will say, well, our democracy is not in trouble, but that's because we're the only country in the world that actually is a real democracy. And everywhere else is just playing around with some sort of hybrid, bastardized system that you've inherited from the past. But we do direct, not referendum democracy in our sense, but direct democracy. There's much, much more citizen input. And of course, you will get what you see in your report, which is the people who are happiest with their democracy are the Swiss. So it's possible that actually the way to have people satisfied with their democracy is to do it like the Swiss do. It's also possible, the other view would be that 
I think democracy for the Swiss is a bit like the Queen for us. People aren't happy with the royal family anymore. They used to be quite satisfied with the royal family, but they're still very, very happy with the Queen because it's like the na- national DNA. It's almost asking people, are you happy to be Swiss? And it happens that in the Swiss case, democracy is the proxy for I, that. I would agree with you, except that... Well, I, I on the second or the I said, oh, I, I accept that. more cynical um, take. People would have said the same was true for the United States, right? That in the United States, democracy is kind of a fundamental creed. To be American is to be a believer in democracy. To be a proud American is to believe in American democracy. And yet, nonetheless, we've seen the situation where satisfaction with democracy in the United States in the last 20 years has gone from almost overwhelming satisfaction to majority dissatisfaction. So I'll be a bit more uh, kinder towards the Swiss, actually. I think the Swiss probably are doing a few things right. And if people are satisfied with democracy in Switzerland, that's at least in part because the institutions are representing people's views and because the Swiss government is fairly clean and transparent and accountable. But it does also touch on another thing that you find. So another standout headline from this is that the bigger the democracy, the more likely people are to be unhappy with it. Scale really matters. Yeah, and smaller democracies, if you amalgamate them, satisfaction has gone up. The big ones, it's gone down. So Switzerland versus America is small versus big. It is small versus big. Whether that's correlation or causation, I'm not so sure. Of course, there are small countries like, you know, Cyprus or Moldova or Armenia, where people are really, really quite unhappy about the state of their uh, democratic institutions right now. So being a small country doesn't guarantee satisfaction with democracy. But yes, you're absolutely right. As descriptively, it is true that many of the most satisfied democracies are indeed these small countries, the Luxembourgs, the Switzerlands, the Norways of this world. It's also true that Switzerland sitting in the middle of the Euro- of Europe without being in the European Union. It's a European country that has set itself apart as a democracy from this much larger political union of which it is not a part. And that particular political union is not generally perceived as being, or at least it has, shall we say, people have mixed sentiments towards its democratic features. So if you all have a sense of being Swiss and not being part of the European Union, In part, that is, I think, an identity claim about being more democratic than what's around you. So that brings us on to another country that soon will not be a part of the European Union, or maybe by the time people listen to this will already not be a part of the European Union, which is the UK. So for the UK, Roberta, you have a longer time frame to look at. So you take the data back to the 1970s, and the UK story suggests another way of telling the overall story, which is that the outlying period is the period where you start for most other countries, which is the 1990s. And the 1990s, people were generally around the world. 1990s were just this fairly good decade. And people were generally relatively satisfied with their democracies. And some of these democracies were new, some of them were old. If you look at the UK thing and you take it back to the 1970s, the 90s looked like the outlier decade because people were not happy in the 70s and they're not particularly happy now. But there was a period, the kind of Blair, Clinton, that era, where things seem to be going well. And we've talked about this more than once on this podcast, that people who orient their view of the world from the 1990s being the default are making a fundamental mistake. Do you think that could be part of what's going on here? So we're talking about growing dissatisfaction with democracy, or are we talking about the return to the norm? I couldn't agree more. It's probably the case that looking back and from another 20 or 30 years from now, we will probably still concur that the 1990s were the exceptional decade. 
maybe Francis Fukuyama was right about the end of history, but the end of history uh, is not the kind of consolidated liberal satisfaction that we had in the 1990s, but is maybe something closer to the democratic morass we're experiencing right now, which we may be experiencing, therefore, for a long time to come. If you look at the the most common critiques that were made about democracy in the 1970s, including in Britain, it was often actually that there was too much democracy. Or was it the Trilateral Commission's report? And a lot of that was, at least in economic terms, focused on inflation. Inflation was seen as being something that democratic politics produced. And some people went as far back as going back to the 1920s and saying when you first move to representative democracy in Europe anyway, on a full franchise, that you get inflation. Obviously, you don't get inflation in the 70s on the scale that you get it in parts of Europe in the 1920s. But there's no doubt that there is a critique that basically runs democratic politics, produces inflation. And that causes some people, at least, to lose faith in in democratic politics. I think, though, if you look at the sort of critique that's come out of the last 10 years, it isn't, I don't think anybody's really complaining that it's producing too much democracy. It's well, m- some Remainers have been complaining. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> true, yeah. too much democracy. Britain might be an exception in this respect, but it's more as much as anything about a sense that it produces inequality, or at least that democracy allied to the forms of economic organisation that we have are producing such high levels of inequality that that is incompatible with democratic politics. So even though I think it's absolutely true that the 90s is an outlier, it's a sort of decade of illusion, that's the way I tend to think about the the 90s, it doesn't mean that we've necessarily gone back to where we were in the 70s. Yeah, and so this is going to be much too crude as a piece of political economic history, but you could say in the 70s there is this fear that too much democracy produces a kind of out-of-control inflation, indeed an out-of-control political economy, and therefore you've got to strip some democracy out of it. You've got to make in- central, central banks, banks independent. Yeah. You introduce more technocracy. And the, the 90s are that sort of high watermark where the technocracy is such that people still feel it's broadly a democracy and things are going relatively well. But over time, what you get in these technocratic systems, because they're less responsive to public opinion, among other things, is a build-up of inequality. And that that's the story of the last 50 years. So it goes, the satisfaction bit, the dip where we see satisfaction, is between inflation and inequality. Is that a way of telling the story of the last 50 years? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think by the 1990s, we had depoliticized a lot of important areas of decision-making, central banks being a fantastic example. And, you know, we were in something more like a sort of elevator button democracy, where, you know, you hit the button in an elevator, the doors are not going to close any faster, but you at least you managed to hit the button, you feel a bit more satisfied, and you're going to go to the same floor. So I think that we were in a situation in the 1990s where maybe there wasn't quite uh, as much political choice in Western societies, and certainly not a very big divide between political parties over the key issues of the day. And so what's broken down is the ability to sort of marry that contradiction of, uh, on the one hand, you know, a society that is providing universal public services and dealing with issues of ingrained social inequality, uh, but at the same time is an open, globalised market economy. On the wider European story we've been talking about, you would expect now in the UK satisfaction with democracy to rise, even if there are some economic adverse economic consequences of Brexit because it does look like when we compare north south and east west in Europe that something like autonomy autonomy from those European institutions correlates with satisfaction with democracy 
I mean, we don't know yet. You're going to have to keep producing this report for the next 10 years before we find out. But There's certainly an argument to be made there. But I think what I, the way that I would explain that is it's almost the way that national politicians game the European system, right? And there's a sense that, you know, national politicians will go to Brussels, go to the European Council meeting, something will be agreed that those politicians also agree with, will come home and then blame European institutions for having imposed this, you know, terrible decision. Obviously, we didn't want to sign it, but we had to. And so I think that dynamic may have had some effect in eroding democratic satisfaction in some EU member states. I think there's different things going on at the same time in the in the United Kingdom's case, both in terms of the present, the recent past and, and the future. On the one hand, there may well be some increase in satisfaction that comes from having a, a politics that is more responsive in democratic political terms to voters than what was the case within the European Union. On the other hand, I think that we would expect to see some increased dissatisfaction in parts of the United Kingdom because, you know, like Spain, the United Kingdom is a, a multinational state and these divisions over Brexit have caused some secessionary pressures, particularly in Scotland, but they've also produced, obviously, a profoundly, or potentially anyway, destabilising situation in Northern Ireland. And... It is also the case that, as you said in response to my earlier answer, that there has been some sense in amongst some voters in Britain that there has been too much democracy because there is some scepticism towards a referendum as a means of making political decisions in what is supposedly representative democratic politics. So I think that there's, there is a fall in the British satisfaction that comes essentially after the referendum which I think you could explain both as coming on the Remain side from those who don't like what they see as the alien insertion of a referendum into democratic politics and then frustration on the the Leave side because it looks for quite some time like the result isn't going to be implemented. But I don't think we can just assume that those sentiments about democratic politics and Brexit on either side are simply going to go away. Um, I'd say before we even get to the Scottish question. And I know Swiss politics, it's too crude to call it referendum politics because it's not, in lots of ways, actually what we would mean by a referendum. It is the case that during the period that satisfaction with democracy has been rising, as, as your report shows, the use of referendums around the world has actually also been rising. There's a very stark increase in all sorts of different political systems, some where they use them a lot, some like ours, where we hardly used to use them at all. These things may also be connected, at least potentially, one of the reasons why you see it in Europe is, is because the European Union generates referendums. It generates referendums essentially around the treaties that it produces because you have to have, find some way of legitimating essentially the constitutional changes that referendums produce. And a number of European Union countries have had a succession of referendums on, the, on these treaties and quite a number of them have produced no votes. And then voters have had to go back and be asked again sometimes more significant changes have been made and sometimes less significant changes have been made but I don't think that there's any way of understanding at least in Europe the rise of referendums without thinking that it has a if you like a structural cause rather than just a let's make democratic politics more responsive cause. The other thing we haven't seen in Europe yet is a pink tide though there's potentially the early signs of one I mean Portugal, Spain, Podemos are now in government some point, presumably, this country can't be ruled by the Conservatives forever. At some point, there's going to be a Labour government because there's no other option here. And again, in France and elsewhere, we don't know. But 
it's possible that the Latin American story you tell does have some lessons for what might happen in Europe. That's another reason that satisfaction and democracy could go up. And Portugal's doing pretty well at the moment. That's absolutely right. Portugal is a really exceptional case because Portugal seemed to have been on the same trajectory as the rest of Southern Europe. People were extremely unhappy with democracy at the height of the Eurozone crisis. But after electing a left government in Portugal, satisfactory democracy absolutely shot up to sort of 60 percent or so. Now, it's actually started to go to go down again in the last year. Uh, so <laughs> we don't want to bang, too much about the, bang on too much about the Portuguese case. You can't uh, just but, say, yeah. vote Labour, get <laughs> satisfaction. <laughs> well, I think that uh, it's great that you refer to the case of Latin America and the pink tide, because there we've seen a whole cycle there. It's gone full circle where when pink tide politicians were elected, satisfaction with democracy really went up in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile satisfaction with democracy rose but as the commodities boom came to its tail end and uh, the sort of the pink tide went out as it were satisfaction with democracy is, is absolutely cratered in latin america i mean i think these do suggest so that a lot of it in these instances it's about economic recovery and that that may coincide with various different parties being elected to power i mean in portugal's case that you get subs- you know reasonably significant economic recovery and you don't get any direct intervention or indeed indirect intervention really from the Eurozone authorities or the German government or anybody else in terms of Portuguese domestic politics in the way in which you do in Italy and Greece. We haven't even talked about what would happen if Bernie became president of the United States. We'll talk about that next week. Roberto's report, and he's the co-author, it's been getting a lot of coverage. You might have seen it on the BBC. It's been in many newspapers. You can read it for free. It's full of interesting stuff. We've tweeted the link at tppodcast underscore. If you just Google Centre for the Future of Democracy, you will find it there. It's based in Cambridge. We're hosting another event for that centre in a couple of weeks. I will be in conversation with Michael Ignatieff. It's open to anyone who happens to be in town who wants to come along. We'll tweet the link to that too. We're going to be focusing on Europe not next week, because next week is the Iowa caucus with Gary Gerstle, but the weeks following. There's a lot going on in Italy, a lot going on in France, and we're going to be talking about all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.